Well, it's good to see you all. My name is Dan Hames. Um, I, I don't know if, uh, I don't know if, I know for who's here. This is the first time I've preached at this 12 o'clock service, so thanks for having me. Very kind of you. Um, we are, um, through the summer, doing a short series um, looking at the Psalms. So we're kicking off tonight, and we're going to begin, if you have a Bible, with Psalm 63. So please, if you have a Bible or if you've got it on your phone, turn with me to Psalm 63. As you turn there, maybe I'll just mention, so it's not a distraction to you throughout the sermon, I fractured my finger, so it's in a little splint. <clears throat> that's just so you're not wondering <laughs> what is going on with my hand. Um, that's what's happened there. I won't, uh, I won't bore you with the details of what I've done and how I did it. Psalm 63. David writes, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Father in heaven, we thank you that you know each one of us here this afternoon. Thank you that you know every detail of our lives, our histories. You know what worries us this morning, what's exciting us, things that are filling our hearts with joy, the things that are filling us with dread. Thank you that you know what we're looking forward to this week. Thank you that you know what's coming this week that we don't even know about. We pray this morning as we look into your word to us, you would open our eyes to see who you are more clearly. Help us to leave this place not just knowing you better, but loving you more because of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's easy to think of the book of the Psalms as a bit like a box of celebrations at Christmas. You sort of dip in for a little treat now and then. You grab your favorite ones and uh, maybe return to the leftover Milky Ways, you know, mid-time, mid-January sometime. Um, if you have to. The Psalms are the sort of book in the Bible that we just like to sort of pick at now and again and just take little bits out. Um, otherwise, you might think of the Psalms as a sort of easily digestible family favorite. Um, it's a lovely way to kick off the day, read a Psalm. Um, you know it's going to do you some good without really too much effort, a bit like chucking down a Yakult before you go to work. But there's a lot more to the Psalms than that. These are the songs that were sung by the ancient Israelites all year round. These songs marked their feasts and their festivals. 
Um, this book shaped the life and the worship of the ancient people of God. The Psalms has been called the hymn book of the church. Songs that express and embody the faith of God's people, Old Testament and New Testament. And in these 150 Psalms, uh, through five books with various authors, they're all drawn together with one great central theme, which is the person and work of Jesus. The book of the Psalms is a bit less like a box of celebrations and a bit more like Handel's Messiah. I don't know if you've ever read that uh, piece, uh, read? Maybe you've read it. Maybe you've listened to that piece of music. I'm sure someone in the room has read that music as you've played it. Maybe you've listened to, though, Handel's Messiah. A load of short little songs that when you put them all together are one majestic, huge piece of music which tell the story of Jesus the Messiah. That is more like what the book of Psalms is. A load of little songs that all together paint a wonderful picture. The Psalms are quoted in the New Testament about 70 times or so, all with reference to Jesus. Some of the Psalms foretell his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Some of the Psalms express the songwriter's faith in him. Some of the Psalms, I think, are Jesus' very own words, prophetically written down before time. So, not so much a kind of little goodie bag of mini scripture snacks, more like a 150-course meal. And what you're being served is Jesus Christ in all his glory, all his goodness. So as you come to services over the summer, that's what to expect. Not a little, not a little celebration in your hand, but one course of a meal. So that's, uh, that's my trailer for the whole series. So I know you might be going on holiday, but if you come back, try and get in for dessert. So Psalm 63... Psalm 63, this psalm, the introduction tells us David wrote this psalm when he was hiding out in the desert of Judah. He was on the run at this time from King Saul. Saul wanted to kill David. And here in this psalm, um, stuck out in the desert, David pours out his heart to the Lord. Verse 1, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So David is hiding. His life is in danger. He's, there's no water around, so it's a hazardous environment. He's fainting with exhaustion. He's desperate for the Lord. And as I read that psalm, the words he's written, out of that situation, I'm surprised by just how upbeat this psalm is. Amid all the fear, the pressing, all of the language in the psalm, as you just cast your eye over it, is positive. It's about God's steadfast love. It's about praising the Lord. David speaks about him, himself being satisfied in knowing God. It's joyful singing. It's confident that the Lord will rescue him, even that there will finally be justice for David in the end. So hugely positive, right in the middle of so much trouble. Now, as we gather here this afternoon in a group the size of this one, there's going to be all kinds of situations of trouble and suffering and difficulty. I don't know what you're facing in your life at the moment. Perhaps anxiety over something, maybe illness in your life, something that's just ahead of you this week that has been looming for a long time and you know now it's just about to come. Maybe there's something in your life that's been a battle for you for a long time and 
You've sort of been facing it down for months or years. It may be there's something that's just cropped up, you know, maybe even this morning you've heard some news, something that's, a phone call that's brought you to your knees or something. And this morning as we look at this psalm, I want you to see that the Lord sees you and he knows you, he sees your trouble and he cares for you. And this psalm is in the Bible and this psalm is on the preaching rotor for this morning because the Lord wants to bring his comfort and even to bring joy and praise into the shadows in your life. If you feel that at the moment, if you're sitting there thinking, well, actually, at the moment, my life's fine. <laughs> Nothing's particularly worrying me. It's a lovely, you know, sunny summer morning. That's great. Let me encourage you this morning. Put this psalm in the bank. Put this psalm in the bank because we never know when suffering and trials will come. We're always in need of the comfort and the promises of God's word. So we're going to delve into Psalm 63, and I'm going to pick out three things, three pictures in this psalm. Your soul... God's hand and God's wings. Your soul, God's hands and God's wings. First of all, your soul. Um, this psalm touches on something that's very deep about us as human beings, and it is all to do with this idea of having a soul. David writes a very funny phrase in verse 1. He says, My soul thirsts for you. My soul thirsts for you. It's a, it's a strange idea to have a, a thirsty soul. We know that our, our soul is not part of our body. It's not like part of the physical part of us that could take a drink. We maybe think of the soul as a sort of inner, maybe non-tangible spiritual thing. But our soul, David says, can thirst for God. Now, the Hebrew word for soul here, and this is, this is if anyone's going to have lunch with anyone afterwards, you can mention this. Always is nice to mention these things over lunch, isn't it? Hebrew, I was just thinking about the Hebrew this morning. Hebrew word for soul is the word nephesh. And um, in terms of speaking about our soul, it means the very center of our human life and existence, our very self, the nephesh. But that word also means throat. It's got a double meaning. It means your soul, but it also means throat. And this little double meaning tells us something really important about us as human beings. Remember when God created Adam in the beginning in the Garden of Eden? He formed him out of dust, and then God breathed life into Adam. And it says that Adam became a living nephesh, a living soul, a living being. That little lump of mud that God made in the beginning, when he breathed into it, it had life, it came to life. And that is what human creatures are. We are created beings that have life poured into us from God. He breathes his life into us. In other words, to be a living nephesh, to be a human with a soul, is to be like an open throat that is open for breath, and food and water and life to be poured in. That's what the wordplay is all about. Now I think of it this way. We've got a picture on the screen of some little chicks in a nest. There they are. Aren't they cute? Uh, sort of. Maybe they'll be a bit cuter like in a few weeks. They are newly hatched. They're really tiny. They're not yet able to fly out of the nest, find food for themselves. Those chicks, for now, 
just sit there in the nest with their beaks wide open, crying out for the provision of their parents who will come and drop some bugs in there or whatever it is they want to eat. That is a picture of what we are like as human beings. We are those hungry chicks with our throats (laughs) wide open. And this is brought home to us every time we sit down for a meal when you're hungry. You know you have to eat to have energy to keep going. It's brought home to us every night when we collapse into bed and fall asleep. We know we've got to recharge. We don't sort of, our battery doesn't stay charged. We need to top up. Every day, all the time, we're confronted with our own limits, our own neediness, our need to take in, take something in to live. That's just how we are. You are created and designed to long for and crave and have poured into you from outside life and sustenance, both physically and spiritually. And that is why your soul can thirst for God. That's why your soul can be thirsty. To be a human being is to be a thirsty, hungry throat, to rely on, to receive from, to eat and drink from the living God. And more than oxygen, more than water, more than food, our souls crave him, that we might rely on him for life and everything. Now, I say all that, I realise it's not really popular, is it, to be needy? No one likes to be needy. No one, no one likes needy people. The child who's got to be in their mummy's arms all the time, it's really annoying. The boyfriend who has to text a hundred times a day. That colleague who's constantly after reassurance that they're doing all right and everything's okay. We just think, just, just chill out for a minute. Like, leave me alone. Stop being so needy. We don't like it when other people are needy, and we probably hate it more when we think, am I being a bit needy? I hope not. I don't, I don't want to be one of those clingy people. But today, make peace with this. You are needy. You are needy. You are a living soul. You are a thirsty nefesh. And that means... You shouldn't be surprised at your neediness. Don't be surprised that you need help or that you struggle. Don't be surprised that you're not very strong on your own. You know, sometimes when we suffer, we feel like we ought to be doing better. We feel like I should be holding up a bit more, shouldn't be crying. If I'm a Christian, I ought to be you know, a bit more full of faith and power and just should be riding this storm. Everything should be fine for me. But being needy is how God made us. That's how you feel this morning, a bit at the end of it. Not much strength, really reliant, a bit limp. That's how God made you to be. Yeah, often our sin and our ignorance will highlight and sort of blow up our neediness and blow up our dependence on God. But still, relying upon him for everything is how he made us in the first place. That's how we're made to be. So the Lord made us this way to show us he alone is the source of life. He alone is the source of love. He alone is the one who can keep us going through all life throws at us. That's what it means to be human. Your soul needs him. Every day, every hour, every moment. Second thing, then, is God's hand. And uh, verse 8 of this psalm is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, I think. Verse 8 of Psalm 63. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. 
in our neediness, in our troubles, in our suffering, we can cling to the Lord. Our souls, our needy souls, can learn to hang on to him. David clearly learned how to do that. Very many of David's psalms are him putting his neediness into prayer, into song, using the psalms that he's writing as a way of clinging to God and staying close to him. So in this psalm, David speaks about meditating on the Lord through the watches of the night. And I imagine many, many here this morning will know that pretty unique feeling of being up all night, the dark hours of sleeplessness, waiting for morning to come, whether it's being up with poorly children, whether it's just anxiety whirring away, uh, maybe you just sleep badly and you just spend all night awake or half awake. I wonder if that's maybe the most, one of the deepest despairs that human beings can feel when we just can't sleep. When our minds won't stop going round, the fears of the strongest. It was there that David learned to cling on to the Lord. It was there that David taught his soul to, to hold tight and to stay close to the Lord. And I have to say that really impresses me because the times when I've felt anxious and sleepless are probably the last times I'm likely to be just, I think I might write a song about how much I love the Lord. More likely to be sort of sweating it out and just thinking, just go to sleep, stop it, just go to sleep. How did, how did David do that? How did he use that moment to say, now is when I cling to the Lord, so much that I'll say, oh yeah, my soul is satisfied, I'm singing for joy. How could David do that? Well, I think it's because he wasn't forcing himself to cling on a bit tighter. He wasn't telling himself, you just need a bit more faith. He wasn't yelling at the night to be gone in Jesus' name. I think the reason David was able to do this was because he believed the second sentence in the verse. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. Your right hand upholds me. Think of a a three-year-old child crossing the road with her dad, clinging tightly to his hand. She's holding on with all of her three-year-old might as the traffic comes, but really it's the daddy's right hand that's holding her. That's where all the strength is, that's where all the protection is, that's where all the safety is. It's not her grip on him that is bringing her the safety, but it's his hand holding her. And I think David learned to see himself in that position. Clinging on, yes, but really held secure in the Lord's right hand. That's where David learned to see himself. Now, in Scripture, God's right hand is always associated with both his almighty power and his blessing. So at once, God's right hand shatters his enemies, rescues his people, wins victories, and at the same time, it's the hand he stretches out to bless and protect the ones he loves. God's right hand I think very often in the Old Testament, God's right hand is even often a title for Jesus himself. God's right hand, the presence in the world of God's power and his blessing at work in his son. The right hand of God. If you're trusting in Jesus today, that is where you are, in that right hand. And you may feel this morning that you're just about clinging on to God Maybe your faith is at a low ebb and you think, I don't know if I can really hang on to him any longer. I don't know if I've really got any more strength left in my fingers. The truth is, you are held 
in the hand that holds the universe together. You are held in the hand that was pierced through with nails out of love for you. You're being held this morning in the hand that has conquered death, risen to new life, and has that invincible life forever. This morning you're being held in the hand that will one day make all things new. That is where you are, unshakable. Yes, cling to God in all of your soul's neediness. Hold on as tight as you can, but also rest. Rest in the knowledge that underneath and above and all around you, he is holding you. He is holding you tight and he will not let you go. However dark the night, however bad the trouble, however overwhelming your fears, if you're a Christian this morning, his almighty, loving right hand holds you. Your soul, God's hand. Finally, God's wings. God's wings. Verse seven, a really wonderful picture. You have been my help and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. That's a picture that comes up a few times in the Psalms. Take a refuge under God's wings. I think we've got a picture actually. Here we go. Here's a sort of picture you might have in mind. A mother hen stretching out her wings to protect her chicks. Jesus, of course, used this image um, in the Gospels, when he spoke to the people of Jerusalem, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. At other times, the Lord says he carried his people out of Egypt in the Exodus on eagles' wings. Um, the wings stuff in the Bible doesn't only speak about birds, though. That's the obvious one. Um, there's a couple of other mentions which are just worth knowing. Do you remember when Ruth goes to... Boaz at night and she curls up at his feet and uh, by doing that it's a slightly unusual way really but it's a, it's a way of saying to him I want you to, to make me your wife and so she goes and curls up at his feet and she says to him spread the wings of your garment over me spread the wings like the edge of the blanket or whatever it is spread the wings of your garment it's a sign of his protection of him, him sort of wrapping his arms around caring for her Actually, Boaz had already prayed for Ruth earlier in, earlier in the story. He prayed for her this. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. It's a picture of refuge being taken under somebody's wings. And that's often what the wings of God are about in Scripture. His protection, his husbandly care for his bride, the church. The peace, the rest, the safety that we find when we're close to him, wrapped up in him, clothed in him, under his wing, next to his heart. But I think there's one more element in this picture of wings. And I want us to take us in our minds to the temple in Jerusalem. Past the outer courts where all the people are milling about doing their stuff. Through the big room in the temple, the holy place, where the priests were doing the sacrifices and offering incense and so on, through that room, through a curtain and into the, the last room in the temple, a little cubic room called the most holy place. And that was the part of the temple where no one else could go. No one was allowed in there because this was really the throne room of God. 
Once a year, one man was allowed to enter, just the high priest of Israel. And in that room, symbolic of God's heavenly throne room, was this piece of furniture, which is about to come onto the screens, the Ark of the Covenant. If you've seen Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, or whichever one it is, is that the one? Which one? The Raiders of the Lost Ark, oh yeah. <laughs> that would make sense, wouldn't it? <laughs> If you've seen that film, you'd, know that you'd, know, you'd be familiar with this. The Ark of the Covenant. This is a wooden chest covered over with gold. And there on the lid you can see two sculpted golden angels with wings outstretched. And there in the most holy place, on this box, the Lord himself would appear to the people of Israel. And he would appear as if seated on this box, shining in his glory. He would speak to the people. This is, if you like, the throne of the Lord, angelic, golden. And on this winged box, once a year, the high priest of Israel would come and he would bring blood of the sacrifice and sprinkle it there on this box. This is a sacrifice which takes away the sin of the people. It's a sacrifice of atonement, forgiveness, wiping away our sins at the throne of God, at the ark. And so they called the ark the mercy seat, the mercy seat, because they knew that when they came to God's throne, they would find that God, seated in majesty, had mercy on sinners and on failures. And I think David has these wings in mind as well as he writes this psalm. He said in verse two, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Your steadfast love is better than life. So I think David's looking at these wings as well in his mind. He's maybe thinking of the bird's wings. He's maybe thinking of the wings of protection. But he's thinking of these wings of refuge, even for those who disobey God, those who sin against him, those who rebel. The wings of God are wings of mercy, wings of steadfast love and welcome. That means as we look at the wings on the ark with David, he's actually taking us to the cross of Jesus. That's really what the Ark of the Covenant is all about. That's what it was there to teach. That's what it was there to symbolize. That there would be a sacrifice for sin. There would be bloodshed that would bring mercy from God to sinners. And David is taking us there to the cross where the true sacrifice for sin was made. David is taking us in our minds to the most holy place and the most holy moment in history when the power and the glory of God are on display for us. He's taken us in our minds to the blood that was shed on earth that would be effective in heaven, in the true throne room, on our behalf. David is showing us the wings of the Lord outstretched to welcome us, to bring us in, to protect and gather us. And you are welcomed by Jesus this morning. Whatever your suffering but also whatever your sin. If you have come to the cross of Jesus, even as we've sung that song earlier, I cast my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me. If you can say that, you've come this morning into the sanctuary, you've walked into the most holy place and you have seen 
God's power and his glory. You've seen it. That's it. That's what he wants to show you of himself. And all this means that that stupid old phrase isn't true. God helps those who, helps them, who help themselves. What a rubbish phrase. Sounds reasonable, doesn't it? Like, look after the pennies and the pounds will take care of themselves. But this one is rubbish. It's a rubbish phrase. It's not true. It ruins Christianity. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps those who are helpless. And do you know what? He loves to do it. He loves to do that. He helps those who are helpless. Real people, normal people, people like you and me. If you think this morning that God will only step into your suffering once you've cleaned up your act, you're mistaken. If you fear this morning that you only qualify for God's protection and help in the battles in your life, if you're a better person, you have God wrong. Your badness does not rule you out of God's help. It actually qualifies you. You are the one he loves to help. He wants to satisfy your soul. He wants to uphold you with his mighty right hand. He wants to clean away your sin and make you new and shelter you under his wings of protection. And if you will come to him this afternoon, he will forgive and cleanse and renew and take you in. It does not matter who you are, where you've been, what you've been doing, how long you've been running away from him, he will take you in. There is always a welcome under the wings of Jesus. So your soul, your nephesh, is a throat, you're needy. God's mighty right hand is extended to bless and protect and hold you this morning. And his wings of mercy are open for you to come in. Isn't that a great comfort to know that is what our God is like? Even in our darkest moments, whether it's suffering or sin, when we feel furthest from him, when we feel weakest, when we're most struggling, that is when he wants to reach out to us, to satisfy, to hold and protect us. I'm going to invite the band to come and let me invite you as well to stand and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, today we want to confess, maybe with relief and gladness, that we are needy people and we need you more than anything else, more than food and water and air, we need you. And we pray this morning that our souls would cling ever tighter to you. But more, more Lord, than that we pray, would we find great rest in knowing your right hand upholds us. Thank you that you are strong enough to carry us. Whatever it is we feel we're carrying on our backs today, thank you that you are carrying us and you are strong. And thank you too that your wings are open to shelter and protect and hide us away. Thank you that under your wings there's forgiveness. Thank you for the cross of Jesus where our sins can be cleansed. Lord, we pray we might each find refuge in you this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.